good morning again, Grace Point. Uh, last week, we began a new series called Bible Stories for Grownups, the Hebrew Bible edition. And we began last week with not a Bible story, but with really just sort of laying the groundwork, talking about what, what does a grown-up faith look like? What does a grown-up approach to the Bible look like? And I essentially outlined three things, like pre-critical, critical, and post-critical. Um, and I'll just recap that really quick in case you missed it. Pre-critical is essentially what we all come into the world at how we all come to the world. It's not, it's that we're not asking a lot of questions about the text. We take it at face value. We're not really engaging like in a deep way. We're just reading it and trying to draw a moral or something out of it. Then there's critical, which is what many of us would call unraveling deconstruction. That's where that begins. And we begin asking and just sort of tearing the, tearing everything down and trying to get to what happened. Is this literal? Is it not all that sort of conversation? And then there's post-critical. And post-critical is essentially what happens when you transcend the critical, but you also include it. So you're still asking meaningful questions. You're engaging the text. You want to know what's going on there. And at the same time, you're also, so it's not just an exercise, exercise of the head. It's also an exercise of the heart. And so post-critical is when you bring head and heart together and seek to wrestle with the text, wrestle with the story, and then figure out how it fits, if it fits, where it fits, and what it says about our lives. And so I want to begin this week um, in earnest digging into Bible stories with a well-known story, the story of Noah and the Great Flood. One, it's one of the first stories kids often learn. And I realized as I was going through some of our you know, books we have upstairs that most, if somebody gives you a book, a, a Bible story for kids book or a little kids Bible or something, almost all the time, like Noah is on the cover Right, and, and, and it's this guy who's on a boat and he's got animals all around him. Uh, it, it, but when you really dig into the story, it is a very, very odd story to tell children. It, and the way we tell it to our kids is really sanitized. I want to show you some pictures. I just searched Noah pictures or something like that on, uh, on the internet. And I got all these images of Noah and they're all the same, like Noah and sometimes his family and all these really happy, smiling animals. And they're on a boat and there's a rainbow above them and everything just looks great. It almost looks like they're on a, a cruise. They're just out there enjoying it. Uh, it. One of my favorite ones is this this one that has all these lessons from Noah's Ark. And the first one is don't miss the boat, um, which is exactly how we, we approach these stories when I was a kid in um, Sunday school, right? The flannel graph version of this, where everything is ultra sanitized, and we talk about how good God was because God saved Noah and all the animals and his family from the flood. The problem is what you don't think about when you're seeing these images of Noah and his family and the animals on their big cruise is that everybody else in the world's dead. Every other animal in the world has been destroyed. This is a it's a massive case of divinely not only sanctioned, but divinely enacted genocide. And I think for lots of us, we, we hear this and we think, man, what do we do with this story? We, we try to make it seem like it's a nice story about God saving people, but in reality, it's a story of genocide of every living thing, save a handful of people and a few animals, and then we kind of don't know what to do. Like, what do you do with a story like this? A story of a God who wipes out life except for a few people. What do you do with this God? So before we all jump to, to talking about this, from a, before we get into talking about this from a grown-up, post-critical perspective, I, I think it might be helpful just to hear the story. And so what's going to happen in a minute, we're gonna, I'm going to invite a couple different people to read two different versions of this story. Um, and, and what I want you to think about um, as they're reading it, you hear one and you hear the other, which one of these stories is in the Bible? 
Um, and this is when I used to, t I taught Old Testament Hebrew Bible at um, Western Kentucky University. I don't know why it's not back there. That's, that's my sink. Um, <laughs> I taught Hebrew Bible uh, at Western Kentucky University. And this is an exercise I did in class. And it was a, a lot of fun. So uh, I'll say this. If you are a person who's super interested in like nerding out, geeking out, digging into a text, that's, you're going to have that itch scratch today. If you're also a person who says, gosh, I, I don't need all that, just Tell me where it hits in my life. Tell me what I'm supposed to do with it. Tell, tell, give me some suggestions on what I might do with a story like this. We're going to also scratch you where you itch today, too. So it, it, if you're kind of in that latter group, you're like, just get to it. This, this first part, hopefully you'll find some of it interesting. Um, and so we're going to hear these two different stories read. Uh, and I want you to be thinking about which one of these stories is actually found in the Bible. Genesis 6, 5 through eight twenty two. The Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the human beings I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor inside of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and its mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and its mate, and seven pairs of birds of the air, also male and female, to keep their kind alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground." And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah, with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. After seven days, the waters of the flood came on the earth, and the rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights, and the Lord shut them in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark and rose it high above the earth. The waters swelled and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated in the face of the waters. The waters swelled so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters swelled above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, human beings and animals and creeping things and birds of the air. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent out a dove for him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to soot its foot and it returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put his hand and took it and brought it in the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, and it did not return to him anymore. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and saw that the face of the ground was drying. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. This is Genesis 6, 9 through 8, 19. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw that the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its width, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and put the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For my part, I am going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every kind shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every kind of food that is eaten and store it up. And it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came on the earth, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. On the very same day, Noah with his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons entered the ark. They and every wild animal of every kind and all domestic animals of every kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every bird of every kind. Every bird, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And all flesh died that move on the earth, birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. And the waters swelled on the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah, and all the wild animals, and all the domestic animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters gradually receded from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat.
the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared, and he sent out the raven, and it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God said to Noah, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, and every animal, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out of the ark by families. Thanks, Greg and Emily. I appreciate so much uh, you all reading those for us. So which one of those is found in the Bible? If you want to just go in the chat there, then just write one or two, story one or story two. Now, to, before we move on, I want to give you, I want to maybe help you because when you read those things, sometimes it goes a little quick. So I want to just sort of give you a synopsis of, of several key things that each story said. The first story, the first story called um, the deity, the God character. And I think it's important to know that there, this is a God character. Um, this is how people uh, were perceiving God, um, and, and so we can talk more about that at another point. But the God character is called the Lord, and Lord is capital L-O-R-D. Uh, it stands for the name Yahweh, which is the personal name uh, that God gives to Moses in the book of Exodus. The reason for the flood, the cause, was that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of their thoughts, the thoughts of their hearts, was only evil continually. When it comes to the animals, there were seven pairs of clean animals, one pair of unclean animals. The rain happened for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end, Noah sent out some doves that brought back an olive leaf, olive branch that let him know that it was safe. And when Noah and his family and all the animals leave the ark, they um, offer a sacrifice to God. Yahweh, God, smells the Lord, smells the pleasing odor of the sacrifice and commits to never again curse the ground because of humankind. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth, nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. So that's the first story. The second story, the God character in this story is called God. <laughs> but actually, that's the Hebrew word. It's the word Elohim. Um, and, and that was a particular understanding of God, particular name of God, specifically in um, Canaanite religions. The cause was that the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. Uh, there are instructions for building the ark. There are... Um, two of every kind of animal. Here come the animals two by two. That's a, again, that's a, like a, a child's song, right? Uh, has anybody heard that? The rat-a-tat-tat, thump, thump, thump. Noah built a great big ark. Uh, maybe that was just something I learned. Um, every kind of food gets loaded up on this one. Um, and then it doesn't rain. The flood doesn't come from the rain. It says the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, in ancient cosmology, the way they assumed things were is that you had like earth, which was on pillars, and then you had, you know, water beneath, and you had like a dome of the sky, and then there, the sky was essentially holding back water. And th there were windows in the sky that would open, and that's where the rain came from, right? So this is that ancient cosmological understanding of creation. 
And so when this flood happens, it's because the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened. The flood lasted for 150 days. Noah sends out a raven at the end. And we didn't get to this part, but at the end, God, God Elohim, makes a covenant with uh, Noah and humankind. And uh, at the end, there's uh, God uh, talks about the rainbow. The, the rainbow is a sign that God would never again do what God just did. So which story, if you're on, you know, you're on a game show and this is the million dollar question. Which story is the, the, the account found in the Bible? Okay, I'm going to give you the answer. Both. Both of those stories are found in the Bible. There are two different accounts from two different sources, two different writers, that were stitched together by, in scholarship circles, they call them redactors. We might say an editor. Um, and so what's interesting is the way the editor stitched the stories together, because some the details, I mean, it's not like a clean, that there's a story and a story. It's that there is two stories and this editor somehow brings them together. And we tend to, at least me, you know, hearing the songs, doing the flannel graph, I was never aware. But when I actually go to the text and read it, it's evident that there are two different Noah stories, two different flood stories here. And there's something interesting about the fact that you have two different, it's the same at the beginning of Genesis. There are two different creation narratives. And what our ancient spiritual ancestors did is they had two different stories with two different details. And what we would have done is said, well, which one's the right one? Which one's the one we want to preserve? What this editor did is say, this, for two different groups of people, this story matters. And so we're going to bring them together. We're going to preserve them. We're going to make them both part of this narrative we're telling. They wanted to preserve both accounts because it mattered. The communities that produced them, these stories mattered. Now, these two sources uh, are known uh, in scholarship as, and there are other sources, but these two specifically. One is known as the Yahwist because it calls God Yahweh all the time. Uh, and another one is known uh, as the Elohim, or priest, I'm sorry, priestly. Um, and the priestly has other features, but one of the features is that before Exodus um, chapter 3, I think, I don't want me to that, but uh, the, the, the priestly source calls God Elohim. So you have two different authors, a, a Yahwist, a, a person who primarily talks, talks about God as Yahweh. And then you have this other source who at this point is talking about God as Elohim, and they both come together. So what do you do with that? How do you approach a story like this, stories like this, in a post-critical, grown-up way that actually value scholarship and you, you want to know what's going on, but it also values the fact that the human heart is, needs to be involved. It needs to be engaged. That ultimately, it's not just satisfying if our brains are happy. We need our hearts happy too. So I want to begin by saying this. The story of Noah, and I bet many of you know this, the story of Noah is not unique within the ancient Near Eastern world. In the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh, and if you think about Gilgamesh, it was written around 1800 BCE. Um, the, the story that calls God Yahweh was written around 950 BCE, and the, the priestly story that calls God Elohim was written around 550 BCE. So it's Gilgamesh by a long stretch, um, in almost a thousand years. And then you have the Yahwist, and then about 400-ish years later, you have the priestly. So these sources are all... So the, the older story is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I'm sure everybody's got that memorized, but just in case you don't, here's sort of the cliff notes. Um, the gods decide to destroy all human life. And one of them, named A, spills the beans to a man named Utnapishtim, and he tells him to build a boat to keep living beings alive 
and he gives him the dimensions of the boat, which actually contained six decks. It literally was the like the carnival cruise of the ancient world. Um, and so the gods send a storm, and the storm lasts for seven days. Eventually, the storm subsides. Utnapishtim sends out a dove and a swallow, both of which return. He finally sends a raven, and the raven doesn't return. And then he offers a sacrifice, and he and his wife are granted immortality. And you see at least some echoes, right? There's some, there's some echoes in both of those stories. Uh, the Gilgamesh uh, echoes exist. Now, what I find really interesting is, what is, the, what is the why? Why does the deluge come? Why, why does God in Genesis, or Yahweh in Genesis, why do, do those gods send the rain, send the flood? And then why do the gods in Gilgamesh? Listen to this line from Gilgamesh. In those days, the world teemed, the people multiplied, the world bellowed like a wild bull. And the great God was aroused by the clamor. Enlil heard the clamor, and he said to the gods in council, the uproar of mankind is intolerable, and sleep is no longer possible by reason of the Babel. So the gods agreed to exterminate mankind, humankind. In Gilgamesh, why do they send the flood? Because these people are so darn noisy. We can't get any sleep. Every time we try to go to sleep, they wake up and they make noise and they make it impossible. Why can't a God get a good nap anymore, right? And so they decide to wipe out all of creation. And one of the gods feels bad and he sort of spills the beans. If you, you then come to the book of Genesis, the shift made in these stories, the, the two versions of the Noah story in Genesis, it isn't that this God is capricious and that this God is angry and that this God can't get a good nap, so this God wants to wipe everybody out. That's not the thing. Instead, this God is responding to a critical disintegration of humanity. And we're going to talk more about that in just a minute. What does a grown-up faith do with a story like this? It probably doesn't build a large replica of the ark and insist we take it very literally and then, you know, or, or the other option is would you just brush it off as some sort of ancient mythology that isn't deserving of our time or our energy? I mean, this story continues. It endures because our ancestors found something in it that resonated with their experiences. So while we may not embrace their explanations, I, I think we have to continually come back to this. We may not embrace their explanations, but we can see their experiences as a doorway and an invitation for us to have our own experiences. Right? We don't, we're deeply interested in their experiences. We're not always interested in, we need to hear them, but we're not always finding their explanations um, credible. So, a few grown up takeaways from this story for me. The flood narratives mark a step forward in how God is understood. And that is a process that needs to continue with us. Freezing our conception of God with this story which is the way many of us were taught to approach it and to do it, right? It is theological and anthropological malpractice. It, it is deeply unfair to God and is deeply unfair to people. A God who is willing to commit genocide isn't one we want to spend an eternity with, right? Much less the brief time we have here on earth. I don't think that either of the writers of these stories expected us to freeze what the, concepts of the, word, what the concept of the word God means. I think they were expressing a sort of a transforming in their own understanding of what the God, word God means. If our understanding of God stops growing and changing, it doesn't mean we finally arrived at the fullest and best understanding. It likely means that we're not growing and transforming. It likely means that we've gotten too comfortable, too complacent, and too settled. It likely means that we've ended up with a God who preserves our privilege and protects our 
ego. And so we don't want to push that boundary. But the reality is the, the God behind that God, the God you want to freeze and keep in place, the God that I want because it's comfortable and it's reassuring to me, the God on the other side of that is, is much more wild and untamable. That is a God that is willing to make us uncomfortable and to bust through our boundaries and to bust through the, the sort of the uh, ideological um, pillars we've set up and all the ways we divided the world up. This God wants to draw us out of those and into something new, something beautiful, and something even more human than we've been. A God who is willing to commit genocide isn't worth our time. But these ancient ancestors of ours, they, they didn't stay with it. They did not stay with the God of Gilgamesh. They didn't just like cut and paste the Gilgamesh stuff verbatim. They made some critical changes. The flood narratives are actually about the disintegration of creation. The disintegration. Think about this. The first part of Genesis is in the beginning, there were the heaven, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God says, let there be light, and there's light, and then there's land, and there's sky, and there's animals, and in the end, there's people, and there's all of this creation. It's all integrated and apart. It's, it's this one beautiful whole. And what the flood narrative, sort of the picture they paint, is that that creation that was all together is now rupturing and being torn apart. Essentially, back, the, the primordial waters, right, the, the water above and water below, the primordial waters that creation held back, the disintegration of creation has allowed them to flow back in. A creation that was whole is now disintegrated. That that feels like this, that, that sort of moment, it feels like this moment, doesn't it? We're in the middle of a pandemic that has killed more than 700,000 people globally. Here in the U.S., the death toll is, I think I heard maybe this morning, um, that it was north of 158, 159, 159,000 people. In a moment that should see us come together as human beings, regardless of all the other categories or ways we're divided, we have we have a shared humanity that could bind us, and yet that's not what's happening in many places, in many contexts. Our shared existence is actually being threatened by the anger and hatred that are so prevalent in our society. Our worship of independence at any cost, as opposed to seeing that we are really interdependent, that we need each other, it is killing us, and it's threatening this existence we share. I think I've mentioned before, I love flying. One of the things I've missed about during this quarantine has been not being on an airplane. It's strange. I am really, really terrified of heights. Like, really, really terrified. Like, I remember a couple years ago, uh, Carl and I took Cohen to um, uh, amusement park, and I'd never been to Ferris wheel, and he hadn't, so they wanted to do that. And I remember I just sat there, and of course it's rocking. I just sort of did this number against the rail and closed my eyes, made the mistake of opening it once at the top. Um, did not make that mistake again. I just, I'm not a heights person. But I love flying. When I'm on a flight that has, when, when you, so you go on a flight, and when it's one of those flights that has different sections, so there's first class, there's economy or coach or whatever you want to call it. I always find it funny because when we enter the plane, everybody goes through the first class because you know, people who are in first class are like sitting there drinking their their champagne and, and like you know being like get the riff out of first, right get the riff out of first class. So uh, what's interesting though is that once we get in there and we get our seats in the more cramped, you know, no frills um, in, in the back, the flight attendants start to spiel about what to do if the airplane, airplane starts to crash or loses cabin pressure. Then at some point, as we're about to take off, they reach over and they unhook this little mesh sort of looking sheer see-through curtain. And this curtain now separates first class from economy or coach or whatever you want to call it. 
It's, it's, it's sort of like the Holy of Holies now, right? But here's what's interesting. If this plane crashes, everyone's in trouble. The curtain can give us a sense of boundary and separation, but we're still connected. All of our lives are connected on, and what happens to that plane matters to each and every one of us very, very deeply. Our fates are intricately intertwined. And that's true of all the time, right now, in this world, as we live out our existence right here on planet Earth. We are specks of dust riding a bigger speck of dust that is hurtling around the sun. And, and, and what happens on this planet, what happens in this world, um, it affects me and it affects you and it affects everybody, people we've never even met before. There's seven billion of us and we're tied together in really deep ways. I think the story could also be read as a way that calls us to action when it comes to our role as gardeners and caretakers of creation, because rising sea levels are actually threatening to make this story a reality in our own time. The human calling has always been to tend creation. And when we take care of the earth, the earth takes care of us. But when we inflict pain on the earth, the earth is not able to provide for us and take care of us in the ways that we, we need. And I think the other meaning, one of the other important meanings to these stories it's that if we don't change our ways, violence will overtake us like a flood and threaten our shared existence. I think that's what's interesting in this story is that the reason, it's not because the gods are cranky and you're waking them up. The reason stated, give or take in both, is that human violence and human corruption was threatening creation. And I think part of what this story can, can mean for us is that if we don't find a, a better way to deal with our troubles and our issues and our, our problems with each other, if we still keep leaning on violence as being the, the number one way we try to solve our disagreements, it is possible that that violence can wipe out all of our shared existence. What is the point of having a nuclear arsenal that can blow the world up 12 times over? You're not going to get to use them all anyway, right? But we have this, we have a problem, a human problem. It's deep within our, our psyche. It's deep within our fight or flight. It's deep within the lizard brain. And it, it actually is part of why our, I, I, I guess, I think, uh, it's part of why Homo sapiens survived. And it's also now the thing that threatens our survival. And I think this idea of the violence overtaking us as personal and political, um, and by political, I mean how, how we order our common life. Everything is essentially political in that way. So let's start with the political, because that's the most, that'd be the most fun. Um, I did some searching on the internet. The U.S. defense budget, <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, Congress approved $738 billion for the 2020 Department of Defense budget. America spends more on defense than the next 10 countries combined. So the next 10 countries combined in 2019 spent $726 billion. The next 10 biggest military countries in the world. We spent more than all of them together. The um, budget for the United States budget for education in 2019 was $72.8 Right, $738 billion versus $72.8 billion. Part of the reason for this is that America has been engaged in war for 20, 227 out of our 244-year history. That's 93% of our existence as a country. We've been engaged in the trauma of violence. I, I know budgets are complicated. I, I get that. Um, I, I've done some advocacy work with one campaign where we go and we, we talk about budgets and that sort of thing with representatives. I also know um, there are committees and negotiations, and there is a whole other set of gymnastics to get our leaders to talk to one another. But even so, a budget is a moral document. 
And I also know that Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And I think we as a country, and it, it sort of is, it exists like at the us level as a country, but I think it's sort of seeped down into the us as individuals. We've bought into this myth of redemptive violence, that if we can, we can just defeat, conquer, bomb, whatever, then we're going to win. And, and actually, when we choose to live by the sword, we die by the sword. We also live in a country where we have an unbelievable amount of mass shootings. As of August 4th, this past week, there were a total of 347 shootings that fit this criteria this year. There are 59 mass shootings in May alone, the highest monthly total reported since the gun violence archive began keeping track of the data in 2013. Balance this with this. The other day on Twitter, I happened to see the NRA tweet, RT if you love guns. Does that, I mean, is that the word you use? RT if you love guns? Guns? Love? Like I love my family? Love? Like I love my community? Like, do I love guns? That is, I think, a deep reflection of where we are societally, where we have bought into the myth of redemptive violence. But beyond budgets and violence from sort of a macro level, there's the threat of interpersonal violence in which we participate, and it's a threat to our well-being. And violence, by the way, isn't just a physical act. Um, I have a friend who I was in my master's program with, and she did a whole uh, thing on rhetorical violence, right? That the dehumanizing and devaluing and demeaning ways we communicate. Rhetorical violence, word violence, language violence, the way we gossip, the way we tear down, the way we use our words to inflict wounds on others. And, and you know, we, we have the whole sticks and stones, break my bones, words, whatever. words will absolutely gut you. And we often use our words in the way to the most, the most, most. And listen, as a as a person who not dabbles in sarcasm, but finds it really, really comes really, really easy. It's a constant thing for me to realize that everything in my brain right now doesn't need to be said in this moment. I do that during sermons too, by the way. Um, it may not seem like it, but I do. But what about the ways? And I think you can make an argument that violence never gets up to the, the macro level. It never gets up to 227 years or whatever, uh, a country being in, in warfare. It all begins in the rhetorical level. It begins in conversation. It begins in the way we talk to people and the way people talk to us. Before it is in words, violence begins in, I'm sorry, before it's in flesh, violence begins in words. What would it look like for us as individuals, families, communities, countries, as a species, to reject the path of violence in favor of a more compassionate existence. We are, we are quite literally together in this. There is no planet B. There is no redo. There is no mulligan. There is no way to hit the reset button and start over. I had, actually, that reminded me when I was a kid. Um, we got, I think, I don't know why I remember this. We got my, my dad a, um, a Nintendo for his Father's Day present in 1984. And it stayed in my room, which I was fine with. Eventually, it stayed in my room. Uh, and me and my dad used to play Tecmo Bowl together. And I don't know if anybody's going to remember that. But it was like one of the first football games on, uh, on a, a game station like that. And apparently, I have some foggy memories of this. One of the things I would do is if dad started be beating me, I would just ac accidentally reset <laughs> the game and we would start all over. There, there is no reset for this. This is our planet. If this plane goes down, we all go with it. Perhaps the Noah story should cause us to use our voices to call for peace, to work for a more peaceful society and world, which, of course, is going to begin right here in my heart and in your heart and in my life and your life and in my words and your words. 
What if we could stem the tide? What if the flood that is coming toward us, the flood of violence, the flood of war, the flood of climate change, the, the flood of hatred, what if we can actually stem the tide? And, and what if, as we read stories like this one, instead of just tossing it aside and saying it has no value, what if we see the creative ways? I mean, the, the writers of these stories understood, knew the Gilgamesh story. They included some details. But what's fascinating is what they change. That, that God is essentially, in this story, it's still like genocide is still bad, right? If you let this story speak to you on a non-literal level, the flood is coming. And in this story, it is not divine violence that precipitates it. Actually, it's human violence. So what do we do? How do we, how do we become aware? How do we use our voices? How do we engage? I think that's where it begins. It begins at a very personal level. And I think you could argue that what's playing out on our news channels every single night of the week did not begin there. It actually started around conversations. It started around moments of frustration. It started in moments of interpersonal conflict that actually then grow and become a flood. I, you know, I, there's some parts of the Noah story. I, I, I like for my. You could even you could take the character of God out of it, right? Because I, I don't think that God actually goes around committing genocide. I, I think God's very different than that. But I think this story has something to say, and, and if we're willing to engage it, if we're willing to do it in a post-critical, grown-up sort of way, um, then then this can offer us some warnings and, and maybe even some hope. Right? These stories end with with God going. It doesn't have to happen. It, we, well, doesn't have to happen, will not happen again. This is not, this doesn't have to be on repeat. But what will determine that is what we do, how we choose to engage, how we choose to live, how we choose to not just do to them what they've done to us. And we'll jump into some more of that over the weeks, coming weeks of this series. We, we live in a world threatened by violence, but we also live in a world with creative human beings. And sometimes we use that creativity to kill each other. But what if we use that creativity to transform the world? What if we use that creativity to continue the fight against all sorts of disease and all sorts of, like, what if we invested more of our money in healing than in destruction? That, that could change the world. So no, I wouldn't tell this story to my kids. Uh, I, I don't tell the story to my kids. I, I don't depict it with, you know, this happy guy with a bunch of animals. What, what I do see, though, is I see the future that we might be heading toward, and I also see the opportunity to change that future. So I, ho I hope you'll join. I hope together, as a community, we can begin to model. What does that look like? What does it look like to take very, very seriously what you're saying, how you're engaging, and what you're doing in the world? Once again, Grace Point, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, each week now after the gathering, we put out some um, questions, some conversation starters, some things that are, are connected to the sermon. Um, and so if you want to go find those, I uh, would love for you to uh, comment on them with maybe your observations or send me an email or however you want to, or just take them and think about them. Like whatever you want to do with them, they're going to be there and I hope they're helpful. Um, so next week, we're going to jump into another really strange story. A story of a guy named Abraham and his son Isaac, and, and it's, I don't even want to spoil it. So um, hopefully you'll be back here with us next week. Look forward to engaging in more Bible stories for grown-ups. Until then, Grace Point, we love you, and may grace and peace be with you.